Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. When President Biden was elected in November 2020, he told the world, America is back. In the first seven months of his presidency, we have witnessed a chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, a collapse in the president's approval numbers a crisis on America's southern border, and questions being raised about Biden's competence. To discuss whether this is America returning, the author and commentator Lionel Shriver joins me, Stephen Edgington. I began by asking, following the end of NATO's presence in Afghanistan, whether we are witnessing the collapse of the American empire. I think that may be a little extravagant, but it's not a good moment. <laughs> Pretty much every intervention in my lifetime internationally hasn't worked out very well for the United States. And there are a couple of small exceptions. I guess the Kosovo intervention was broadly successful. And I think the first Gulf War did what it set out to do, even though George Bush Sr., got a lot of grief for making that a limited intervention and merely getting Iraq out of Kuwait and going home. I thought that was brilliant. Mission accomplished, and who wants Iraq as the 51st state? Otherwise, they've all been catastrophes of one nature or another. Another country going in and invading and forcing that country to change doesn't usually work. And the United States continually acts as if because it's so morally superior and has noble reasons for intervening in another country's domestic affairs, that it doesn't count as real imperialism and it's not really a colonial invasion. It's not an imposition. It's doing the country a favor. I'm afraid that from the other side, it doesn't look that way. And as for Afghanistan... Sometimes the most depressing thing can be to be proved right. I was a little skeptical of the original invasion. I certainly thought some kind of brief, if severe, punishment uh, for harboring al-Qaeda after 9-11 made sense. But I don't know why that would necessarily have had to take the form of occupation. And the longer we stayed there, the worse it looked, the more fruitless it looked. I don't think these nation-building efforts ever succeed, really, unless you're dealing with a completely defeated power, like after World War II. So usually these things are a little tricky to assess, you know, whether we did any good or not. But in this one, it's absolutely perfectly the same as if we had never been there after 20 bloody years. I don't like being right. I don't like the U.S. wasting over $2 trillion taxpayer dollars for nothing, and for worse than nothing, because that money fed the corruption. I mean, you can't have corruption without money. Without all that money, the Afghanis would be trading favors with rocks. <laughs> it's a good point, because I think many people in America and around the world would be astounded at how much your taxpayers' money has gone into Afghanistan. 
And where is the accountability as to where that money has gone? And now that it's been basically proven that the venture was a complete failure, the Afghani government collapsed within 11 days of the Americans pulling out. Who is going to be held accountable for that failure and for that entire, that huge waste of money? Well, of course, in a way, Biden is left holding the bag, and that's not fair, because this is a bipartisan failure. Both parties have a big hand in staying in Afghanistan, coming up with different reasons to be there. There was never a coherent plan for what would constitute success, and therefore our ability to say, job well done, let's get out of here. To the degree that there was ever a a coherent goal, it was unachievable, and anyone on the ground knew that. And so U.S. officials had plenty of information that it wasn't working and wasn't ever going to work. So it's hard to know who gets held accountable. I mean, whether Biden will pay for this at the ballot box is anyone's guess. American voters are historically weirdly unconcerned with foreign policy. And also there's that equally weird phenomenon of having a short memory. So this isn't immediately before an election and therefore what effect it's going to have on 2024 is impossible to say. Even on 2022, that's a whole year and some from now. I don't know how long this is going to linger in the American imagination. I think it's going to linger in the international imagination for a long time. I have no idea what kind of electoral consequences it will have. In terms of the principle of holding your leaders accountable, and it's not just politicians, but people within the military infrastructure, the CIA, the chiefs of staff, who pushed for this war, who pushed for us to stay in this war, And, for example, they were proved wrong in so many ways. They claimed that the Afghan government would last, according to Joe Biden, at least to the end of the year. And they were all completely taken aback as to the swiftness of the Taliban's advance throughout the country. And as you mentioned rightly, a huge amount of money was spent training the Afghan army. Biden said famously just a month ago, 300,000 people, this is as well equipped as any modern day army can be, and yet it collapsed immediately. So surely the principle of people being held accountable for the waste of money and for essentially lying, or at least a huge amount of incompetence, it's either lying or it's incompetence, surely there should be some accountability. And if there's not, are people not angry about what's going on? I think people are not angry enough. First of all, you know, half the United States doesn't pay any income tax. (laughs) So that changes your relationship to government spending enormously. There's not that sense that it's your money. It's only taxpayers who get upset about the waste of taxpayers' money because it feels personal. And otherwise, it's abstract. You know, it's somebody else's money. So big deal. They just wasted $2 trillion. Furthermore, that quantity of money is also abstract. Nobody understands what a trillion dollars is. It's too much money to grasp. And therefore, it's like, eh. (laughs) That's one reason Biden is getting away with these outrageous spending bills, is that they are of a quantity that nobody can comprehend. It's just sort of a lot, right? It's actually easier to get away with wasting, quote, a lot of money than it is to get away with wasting amounts that people can grasp. Relatively petty waste is easy to understand and does make people mad, but not giant waste because it isn't real. And Matt Taibbi did a really good essay this last week on the fact that You know, while Biden blames the government corruption for the way this turned out, most serious corruption was on the American side. You're talking about accountability. One of the nice things about being in on adventures abroad is that there is no accountability, right? Nobody is looking over their shoulder. Nobody is keeping track of what you're doing. And the waste on the contractor's side was stupendous. You know, they have done some 
meager research on some of these ludicrous programs that were concocted in order to spend money. And they didn't achieve any of their goals, aside from their real goal, which was to line the pockets of the contractors and the people who were involved in the program. That's the real scandal, and that's what nobody is ever going to be called on. Nobody will ever be punished. And what about this issue, putting money to one side, what about this issue of the entire military apparatus, the CIA, the MOD, or the Department of Defense in America? You know, even in the UK, we have similar events have happened where the entire supposed experts were wrong about Afghanistan. And they were, they've been proved wrong in the most humiliating and embarrassing way for America and for the West. So what about that issue of these people who claim to be experts on the country who were just utterly, utterly wrong? One of the things that's been weird about the way Biden has handled this thing is claiming that the intelligence community told him that everything would be fine. At the very least, if the Taliban did take over, it would take over a year. This is a defense. I mean, it's an accusation. It's an indictment. What's wrong with your intelligence people who are that wrong? I actually don't believe they were all that wrong. They can't be that stupid. I'm no expert on Afghanistan. Don't pretend to be. But anyone on the ground knew perfectly well, because I was reading newspaper articles that said this a long time ago, the Afghan army was not even being fed, right? Much less paid. What does that do to troop loyalty? It means there isn't any, right? That makes people angry. Anyone would be angry. You don't have any food. Um, Maybe the U.S. has given you weapons, but you can't eat your gun. And nobody's paying your wages. Well, that means you've got an army that is ready to run. They, They have no reason to do what they're told. It shouldn't take a bunch of, quote, experts to figure that out. Any normal person could tell you that. So why did Biden do this despite, and there's conflicting reports of what he was advised, but despite at least some advice saying that this could be a complete disaster? What was his motivation behind this? Was it entirely political, trying to coincide this before 9-11, the 20th anniversary? You know, I should clarify that I actually do support the policy. Obviously, it was poorly executed. That should be separate from whether or not we should leave. If we have wasted our time, effort, and money for 20 years, wasting it for 21 is not going to make any difference. We bought into the sunk cost fallacy for two decades. And at a certain point, you cut your losses. So it was past time to cut our losses. And we did need to get out of there. And the chances are that it would still end up with Taliban control. I don't see how we get around that. So to me, this is just method and not a problem of the larger policy. We had to get out of there. And I give Biden credit for recognizing that. But method is extremely important because you're seeing now in Afghanistan thousands of American citizens who have potentially been left behind, who are unable at this moment to get to the airport in Kabul to be airlifted out. You've seen thousands of Afghan translators and other people who have helped the U.S. Army who are unable to get out. You've seen thousands of other people who are uh, who may be killed by the Taliban because of their support of the U.S. and its allies. And then you've also seen huge amounts of equipment, planes, guns, trucks being left to the Taliban itself. So the method in which Biden rushed out, he got the military out first. You're seeing people climbing onto American planes and falling to their death. It's important to remember that this was the method is, is just as important as what, in a way as the policy and how this looks around the world. So surely Biden has to take responsibility for that. Oh, absolutely. It's horrific. I mean, I agree with everything you observe. I have no understanding of why we would extract ourselves and leave behind all that equipment so the Taliban becomes one of the best equipped governments in the world. 
if nothing else, you could have blown it up, right? That's primitive war making. You don't leave your stuff for the enemy. I mean, on, on every level, it doesn't make sense the way this was done. And I do not think Biden has covered himself in glory in his press conferences and that address to the nation. He's not taking any responsibility. It doesn't look good. He's not really owning up to this was very badly planned. And a lot more should have gone into the execution of withdrawal. It shouldn't have been sped up in a way that just to service the overtly sentimental, arbitrary date of September 11th. I mean, who cares? It should have taken longer with more troops. Get all the civilians out first in an orderly fashion. I mean, obviously, the optics on this are a catastrophe. It set back the reputation of the United States enormously. But I guess when we first began talking, what I was getting at is, okay, this sets back the reputation of the U.S. enormously, but all those other interventions that also didn't work should have had the same effect. So I think what we're dealing with for anyone who's really been paying attention over the years is cumulative. So it's not just this fiasco. It's a, a lot of fiascos. And let's not, of course, forget about Iraq, which hasn't exactly ended very well either. None of it's worked. The U.S. as the world's policeman is dysfunctional. You know, I don't know where that leaves us if there is no world power willing to intervene in a country that's going nuts. That is ultimately a permission for dictators and tyrannies of all sorts to take over and with the surety that nobody's going to bother them because it's a domestic affair. One of the reasons Afghanistan is so interesting is because both the British Empire and the Soviet Union attempted invasions of Afghanistan and were humiliated and were kicked out and failed. And this was it, it's seen as a sort of graveyard by some of empires. And I'm going to read you a quote from one of the most influential conservative commentators in America, Fox News host Tucker Carlson. And he said on his show, This is the face of the late American empire, gender studies seminars at gunpoint. And he was referring to classes that the US military were handing out in Afghanistan uh, to promote inclusivity and women's rights and things like that. Do you th agree with this thesis? That the, so I, I'm going to go back to my first question where the American empire is slowly dying, it's slowly receding, and it's losing its moral authority. Well, what Tucker was talking about is the fact that, especially under Biden, the U.S. military has become completely distracted by and absorbed in identity politics, Black Lives Matter nonsense. And it is a scandal. That that's where a lot of the energy is gone instead of military matters. That is the kind of thing that could help mark the beginning of the end of an empire. If we put this in a larger context, you've got a culture at the top that's now in power, not just in government, but also across the board in institutions and media, that is very inward, self-absorbed, petty, and has a veneer of self-hatred. I, I think it's not actually self-hatred. I think it's hatred of other people. They don't hate themselves at all. And it's, it's divisive. And definitely a kind of fiddling while Rome burns. It's disappearing up your own arsehole over gender pronouns and getting people to change sex in the military and everything. It's just, it has nothing to do with what the military is for. And the larger country is completely hung up on self-criticism to the point of not paying attention to the rest of the world and having lost a grip on what good and evil are all about. You know, you've got professors being fired at universities because they actually pronounced the N-word out loud, not even using it as a pejorative, but happened to allow the syllables out of their mouth. And meanwhile, you know, China's putting a million Uyghurs in concentration camps. Nobody gives a shit. It is losing your moral 
grounding. These people keep talking about morality, but the feeling is they don't know what it is anymore. They don't know what, what it is to be bad. And there is such a thing as being bad. There is such a thing as truly abusing people and killing them and and depriving them of their liberties. And it, it does matter. But in the United States, the people in power are not living in that universe. Have they lost perspective because they live in the greatest moment they could have ever chosen to be a human being and in the most powerful country on earth right now? I mean, I think there's a larger cultural and even civilizational complacency going on in the United States. And maybe this is just the fate of any power that has been on top for too long. And it's true that the Roman Empire lasted hundreds of years, but my sense is that time is a bit sped up now, if only because of technology. And maybe the 70 years since World War II is the Roman equivalent of 400 years. But there's a feeling here that we can just take this for granted. And it's funny, I was asked recently to do a piece on 9-11, and I've, I've been thinking about what that means to me. Everything I like to take for granted is extremely fragile, much more quickly than any of us have any idea. Afghanistan is a good example. It took 11 days. Bloody hell. And everything can change on a dime. Americans just think they can assume their world power status, that they can assume their economy will continue to thrive, that the dollar will always be the reserve currency and the most respected currency, and you know, their economy will always be stable. No, you can't. And civilizations need to be maintained. You can't just skate on what you've already done. And I think that's where the U.S. is making a big mistake on a collective level that it, even this uh, paroxysm of self-criticism, which reached such a pitch after the George Floyd murder, it's an, an indulgence. You need to encourage a culture of fundamental self-respect. To imagine that you can promote an idea of your country as systemically evil and continue to have things go on as normal and all, have all the systems and institutions in, in that country perk along happily while believing in its heart of hearts that it is a corrupt and disgusting entity. No, no, that doesn't work. You cannot build a nation on self-disgust. I think people who are promoting this version of the United States, and I'm afraid that I include Biden. He's been quite captured by these identity politics folks, and he uses their language. I think that no president of this country should be referring to the U.S. as systemically racist, because that whole term comes with it a package of assumptions, one of which is that the place is irredeemable and there's something deeply and horribly wrong going back to its very basis. And the only reason it functions is because of racism. You know, everything is based on racism. What's, it's a patently ludicrous assertion. And it's certainly not something that the U.S. president should be saying. And he's repeated it multiple times. I am in real despair right now, not just about the U.S., but about the whole Western civilization right now. It's almost as if once you reach a certain point of having achieved something, then the only thing left is to rip it apart. And that is what postmodernism is, if you look at its ideology. And it's interesting you mentioned Joe Biden. You voted for Joe Biden. Uh, I'm not just saying that. I mean, you, you wrote about it at the time. I, I, I did. Exactly. Uh, so, so, All my fault. <laughs> and in eight months, we've seen the collapse of Afghanistan. We've seen a crisis on the southern border, which you can talk about later as well, I'm sure. You've talked already about his use of language being extreme. And I think to most commentators, he's been far more radical than most people expected him to be when he became president. 
So my question is, do you regret putting your ex on that on that ballot box? Well, I can't say that I wish that Trump were still president. I mean, I wouldn't go back and vote for Trump. I think he had to go. But ironically, some of the reasons that I wanted Trump to go, because I thought he was fundamentally incompetent, now kind of apply to Biden. I'm worried about his mental competence. I was worried about Trump's mental competence. I, I find it astonishing that we had an election for president. And they were both very old men. There was plenty of evidence. They were starting to lose it. Can't we do better than that? Apparently not. I don't know what I would do differently. I mean, do you remember who all was running for president on the Democratic side? They Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We're all very far left wing. You know, there was that infamous moment in one of the debates is, you know, should we give illegal immigrants free health care? And basically everyone raised their hands. Talk about optics. That was a terrible moment for the Democratic Party. So, yeah, I mean, I supported Biden by default. He was one of the only credible candidates who seemed as if he might be able to beat Trump. I supported him because I thought he was a centrist and I thought that he would rule as a centrist. He certainly played to that role during the election. And his rhetoric was ameliorative and pretty middle of the road. He didn't pull out all that identity politics nonsense when he was running. Uh, so, you know, so far his presidency has been a, a terrible disappointment to me. I do, I'm going to quote from that article just to reinforce your disappointment. You said at the time, Biden might halt the attrition of qualified civil servants from every branch of government while improving his country's international standing, Biden's very dullness could restore a sense of order. So do you feel, in a way, duped by... I mean, in the campaign, he, he barely even left his basement, so I suppose there's not too much to be duped about. But you're right, the statements he made were far more moderate, I think, than he's made since he was president. Well, I keep battling which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. <laughs> If he is in control, we're in trouble. And then if somebody else is pulling the strings, which, you know, that's a common accusation, well, that's equally disturbing. We don't know exactly who they are. We can't, therefore, hold them accountable. I'm worried about Biden's mental state. This has become really touchy because nobody wants to be mean. There are a lot of other people in the United States who, who have fragile mental states and who are elderly, and uh, everyone wants to be sensitive, but uh, he's president. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier China, one of the US's strategic competitors, and Russia, I mean, less important, but still one of America's rivals. How do you think they view this situation where you've got an American president who people are questioning his mental faculties, who has obviously made a huge error in Afghanistan, are they sitting back and sort of laughing or smiling with glee? Oh, yeah, I think this is a wonderful moment for Russia and China and Iran. Uh, if they were listening to this interview, they'd be cheering. You know, that's what I mean by there is such a thing as, as bad. And these are regimes that do 
some pretty awful things. And the more the U.S. looks as if it's in a state of chaos and it's eating its own and, you know, when it ventures abroad, it just wastes its resources and, and accomplishes absolutely nothing. Sure, our enemies and detractors are delighted. And this does nothing but strengthen, especially the likes of China, who can, you know, they never pretend to go in and nation build, do they? They take over, they help themselves to resources, they put together debt deals that mean that countries are tied to them indefinitely. There are ways that they are also a colonial power. I ask Africa. But they do it through economics, and they don't do it with an army. So, you know, we strengthened their hand in that respect. We're the safe party. You know, we're just going to help you. We're just going to build dams and, and power plants. You can trust us. Is America a serious country anymore? What I mean by that is we've already mentioned the kind of woke, inclusive diversity agenda Within the U.S. military, you've got the CIA putting out adverts saying, "I'm a sort of I suffer with anxiety, and I'm in the CIA. Come and join me," and um, things like that. So, do, do, I mean, when you look at China, and they, they they don't focus on these things. They focus on, um, or at least their optics or their propaganda says, "We're a united country. We aren't chaotic. We have order." We're just getting on with building our economy and, and we're not, we don't have this kind of self-hatred or crisis of consciousness that they have in the West. Well, the U.S. culture right now is so self-absorbed that it is not really looking outward or, or even forward in order to achieve something. There's no sense of trying to achieve something aside from diversity, right? And I've observed multiple times, I'm sorry, being diverse is not a job. You know, if you put together an organization and all it is is diverse, it just sits there. It does not accomplish anything. And this country now thinks that being diverse is a job. Okay? So we only seem to care now about some kind of racial justice, gender justice, all kinds of different justice. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, we're dismantling the high schools that have high standards and are hard to get into and really push people who are gifted to begin with to achieve even greater levels of education. We're dismantling the testing system by which you get into university you have the likes of Oregon is rescinding the requirements for graduating from high school um, so that basically you don't have to know anything. And that means that a high school diploma is utterly meaningless. And this is happening all over the country. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, even corporations are wasting their time and their money on these pointless anti-bias training courses and that sort of thing. I mean, it, you know, frankly, it was alarming to watch Biden appoint his cabinet and his staff, and it was very obvious that the only thing he cared about was what race or gender they were. And that was it. And that's all the media ever celebrated. You never heard the media uh, on CNN saying, you know, here this new energy secretary is so well qualified, has had these and these and these posts, and that is the obvious by far and ahead candidate for this position will really take energy policy in this country by the horns, has all these great ideas about how to go forward and decarbonize our economy. No. No. All that ever mattered was race and gender, and that's all they ever celebrated. Now, I found that alarming. I haven't researched all these appointments, and I'm not going to say necessarily that they're all unqualified. Maybe some of them are, but we sure never heard about their qualifications. They didn't matter. And perhaps what you're seeing in Afghanistan is what happens when you appoint people based on their characteristics rather than their merit or their record, perhaps. Well, certainly the appearances of the U.S. military before Congress that I have seen on television have all been about race and gender and rooting out extremism in the ranks, right? 
this, there's this new mythology about the United States is that we have this huge, growing, dangerous, white supremacist set of militias all over the country. You know, this is the post-January 6th version of events. And these are the real enemies of the country. They're within and they must be rooted out. Frankly, I've never seen any persuasive evidence that there's anything of the kind. I mean, yes, you know, the United States has had a small rump of lunatic, genuine white supremacists in the old sense of the word, right, forever. But I have never seen any evidence that these people are genuinely burgeoning in number. But that's what the military talks about. That's about all I've heard them talk about, not about how to withdraw from Afghanistan in an orderly same fashion that rescues all the civilians first. You know, I never saw any of that. It's only the identity politics stuff and the white supremacy stuff that I ever hear the military testify about. And I find that really disturbing. I mean, you talk about white supremacy. The other issue that they talk about, of course, is climate change. And they say these are the two greatest threats facing America. I mean, how ludicrous is that? Or is it not? Or should we be really worried about climate change? And, and that's a, a very important issue that we need to tackle right now. Uh, well, the climate change is sort of don't get me started. <laughs> I mean, this is another road to ruin, another obsession which China is enjoying and is going to benefit from. And a lot of it's ir- totally irrational. When look at the UK, for example, busy going to make it impossible to generate steel in-country. So it's just going to import it from China, and it's all going to be made from coal-fired power plants. So what have you accomplished? Same kind of idiotic reasoning over here. There's a lot of faux environmentalism. really has to do with the just importing, and also has to do with not making the proper calculations, not being realistic. How much energy does it take to generate one of those enormous wind turbines. And that, that has to be taken on board. And how long do they last? I don't think people really know because most of them are pretty new. And then how much energy does it take to replace them? There's this tremendous lack of realism. All that matters is the idealism, not the practicalities. And so there's a lot of gesturing toward climate change, which isn't going to make any difference for the climate at, at all but will, in fact, do the country and the economy enormous amounts of damage. It's just posturing. Do you think that people are being alarmist when they're talking about climate change? I mean, you've got people like Greta Thunberg who say that we have only a limited amount of time before it's too late. They are very, very extreme in their language. They talk about you know, Extinction Rebellion. There's this great movement in the UK who are essentially a group of people who say that we're all going to be dead or we're going to have a life that isn't worth living. Do you see a kind of alarmism? And on any level, should we be worried about this? Well, I mean, what you just said, doesn't it sound like Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park? I mean, doesn't this sound familiar? Haven't we been listening to preachers telling us that the end of the world is nigh forever? it's, it's, It's too familiar. I've been hearing threats about extinction or the end of the world forever. The climate is changing, if only because the climate is always changing. I don't think we're in control of it. I I find it completely credible that human activity has influenced the climate, but that is a very different matter from imagining that we can just reach for a dial and turn it down. I am not convinced that even if it were successful, decarbonization would appreciably affect what's already underway. It's bigger than we are. To the degree that we triggered something, it's already triggered. And just because you can start something doesn't mean you can stop it. So, I mean, I know that's a little cynical, but I don't subscribe to the school that says, well, if by any chance completely decarbonizing the entire world actually will affect the climate, then we have no choice but to do it. That's acting as if there is no cost to that. And the cost of that is potentially catastrophic. We're counting on all kinds of technologies coming around that don't exist yet. You can't make policy on the basis of non-existent technology. You can adapt to new technology. You can incentivize research on it. But you shouldn't be planning on it. 
that's certainly what the UK is doing, and the US is set to do the same thing. There are probably some advantages to decarbonization, uh, just in terms of pollution, etc. And I think that's a good thing. So re less reliance on fossil fuels is, is probably good for the environment, just in terms of air, especially. But I do not buy into the apocalyptic scenario. And if we are looking at apocalypse, then I think it's out of our hands. Adopting extreme legal positions as the UK is doing right now. Oh, you can't buy a gas boiler after 2030 or outlawing petrol cars after a certain point. I think that's heavy handed and that's not the way technology works. The technology needs to lead the way. I don't think that it, this is the whole project is going to work by government edict. What do you say to their argument that a huge majority of scientists agree that we human beings are contributing to climate change, are contributing to global warming, are contributing to greater events like flooding and hurricanes and things like that, and that it's our moral and ethical duty to reduce carbon emissions as, as quickly as possible in order to prevent future natural disasters and other huge problems that would arise from the world becoming warmer. Or, more, or having more extreme weather events? Well, I repeat, I just don't think we're in control. So I'm not necessarily going to contest the version of events whereby we have contributed to whatever is happening with the climate right now. But I don't think we can stop it. And that's not a popular viewpoint. And I can see why it would make some people mad. But there are many contributors to what happens to climate. There are many reasons. There are hurricanes and droughts and fires. One of the things that nobody ever talks about is population. One of the reasons that all of these factors that we contribute to have gone up so much is because there's so many of us. There are almost 8 billion people on the planet now. There were less than three when I was born. That's astonishing. And that's a lot of it. The droughts in the Western United States, which are huge and very important, and not just for this country, but for the rest of the world, because a lot of food comes from the likes of California. They're partly because there are too many people living in the Western United States. Now, you may drive through it and see it's, it looks underpopulated, but it doesn't have enough water. It never did. And we, we are depleting the aquifers because there are too many people there. Now, I, was, I thought it was hilarious that uh, uh, some writer recently published a book that was claiming that the United States should welcome up to a billion new people as immigrants. And, you know, just on the basis of water alone, that's a completely absurd proposition. So one of the big contributors to climate change is just human population. And that's another thing, you know. I mean, what are we going to do about it? a certain degree of further increase is already baked in. So on this issue of immigration, I want to quote from an article you wrote earlier in the year in The Times. You said that Democrats have long argued for de facto open borders and an amnesty for illegal immigrants, or in Joe Biden's euphemism, a pathway to citizenship, on the understanding that all these Democrats-to-be will put their party permanently in power. So do you see a kind of conspiracy here where the Democrats are looking for new voters? Is that what's going on at the moment? You can certainly put together a credible case that this is calculated. And Democrats think that all ethnic minorities always vote Democratic, and this is in their interest. And I think that's a contributing factor, but I, I don't actually think that's the main thing. Uh, Democrats have actually swallowed this notion that enforcing immigration laws at all is racist. You know, they don't feel, the whole left wing of the party anyway, does not feel that they have any special loyalty to the people who live here. They have a loyalty to all of humanity, and especially to minorities, which are, of course, not actually minorities in their own countries. And so anyone who wants what we constantly call a better life has a moral right to come to the United States 
and we have no right to stop them. Now, these are nice people. They're, they are not superior to us. By the way, I agree with this. It's, it's true, of course. I am totally sympathetic. In fact, that's one of the problems with the whole immigration issue, is that you cannot not be sympathetic. I mean, a lot of these people are leaving countries none of us would want to live in, in circumstances none of us would enjoy. And most of us in this same position, if we had any get up and go, would get up and go. So that's not where the responsibility lies. It's a question of whether or not you feel a sense of commitment to your nation and your people, and the Democrats just don't. The left doesn't. In a more recent column, I said uh, that I didn't think that it was because they wanted all the new little Democrats, but that they were hung by their own niceness, all that niceness, all that sympathy. Oh, these people, they just want a better life. And now we're looking at what all that niceness looks like. It's horrific. And it's <clears throat> incredibly abusive of the people who live on the border. And beyond that, all these people are also being shipped into the center of the U.S., it's sent to the American South, sent to the Midwest. A lot of them are going to end up in New York. They always do. And suddenly, you know, as soon as they arrive in this country, they're our responsibility and their health care, their housing, their food, everything about them is our problem. And I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair to the people who live here. I happen to believe in the nation state. And I, I think that the responsibility of the government is to take care of the people who are already citizens. That's not something that Democrats embrace. The Democratic Party now does not believe that its primary loyalty is to American citizens. Their loyalty is to a greater moral good. And that's, you know, what we see on the border now. When you put that kind of attitude into policy, that's what it looks like. The border is being flooded. And my concern is that it's only going to get worse because word's out. If I'm watching all these broadcasts, you watch the coverage and the border agents, even where there is a wall, there is a gate, they just open the gate, you know, and they just let everybody in. Um, who's watching that besides me? Everyone else who wants to get into the United States. Why do you think Mexico is full of people from other countries, even as far away as Africa, right? They're headed to Mexico so that they can get up through the border. Word is out, and it's, it's only going to get more intense. And I don't know what it's going to take for Biden to do something about it and to get over his own niceness problem. Clearly, giving Kamala Harris uh, this remit was, I don't know, is he trying to get rid of her? <laughs> it, she's, she can't handle it. She doesn't have any policy solutions. There is no solution aside from anti-niceness, otherwise known as meanness, right? You actually have to be mean to very nice people. You have to tell them, no, they can't have a better life, because that's at the cost of having a worse life for the people who already live here. And that's just anathema to the Democratic Party right now. They can't be mean. I should mention that the quote I, I quoted you from one of your articles was in the context of a historic debate. I think you basically say that the Democrats now have changed their mind and they're, you know, as you say now, they're kind of based on this idea of morality over everything else. I want to leave you with one last question because I think that I do these interviews and we talk about perspective. All these issues are so depressing. You know, we talk about Afghanistan, immigration, climate change, wokeism. I want to leave people with a, a, perhaps a broader perspective on life, a more optimistic one. So can you give people any kind of reason to be hopeful or optimistic uh, moving forward? It's going to take me a minute. Tough question, tough <laughs> um, question. <laughs> off the top of my head, I don't know. I, okay, I just subscribed to a new journal and read a couple articles yesterday. And they were really good. They were really smart. They were well-written, well-edited, thoughtful. 
they were written by intelligent uh, people who had a sense of moral grounding. And all I'm saying is they're still out there. Some of them are even American, right? So the people in charge right now are going a little crazy. But that doesn't mean that everybody is crazy. There are a lot of articulate, wise people left in the world, in the Western world, who, who are out there. And if you look for it, you can read their work. And it, there are enough of them out there that, and maybe some of them have children, <laughs> right? We are dominated by the most shrill voices out there, but that's not representative of everyone in our societies. And, you know, it, it's worth appreciating even your own friends who are sane and reasonable and well-educated and they have a sense of humor. I'm glad you answered that. I think, look, I think there's so many things to be to be appreciative of and happy about and everything else. You know, turn off Twitter and perhaps um, that's my advice to people at home. Uh, you will probably live a much happier life. Thank you so much, Lionel, for joining us. That was absolutely fantastic. I really enjoy talking to you, Stephen. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.